Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are honored to be joined by Dr. Robert Epstein, who received his uh, PhD in, uh, in psychology from Harvard in 1981 and was the former editor-in-chief at Psychology Today. And he now serves as a senior research psychologist for the American Institute of Behavioral Research and Technology. And from our perspective, he's really uh, exposing the fraud, deception, and manipulation that Google has been doing for at least the last decade. And we're going to have a really engaging discussion that's going to open your eyes. I really wasn't quite aware of Dr. Epstein's work prior to our interview, but I, I'm just really impressed with the knowledge he's uncovered about the surreptitious behavior of Google. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Sure, it's my pleasure. So we're about the same age and you've, we've both written about the same number of books and we've both been targeted and censored by Google. Uh, I'm wondering if, if, if we were, and I hope to have a really long engaging discussion on this, and I'm wondering just to give people an idea of where you're coming from, what your personal experience was with Google. And I believe it started from you writing how they were manipulating an election in 2012, and then, and then uh, the, uh, blowback started to happen. So, and if my, my details are incorrect, certainly update them and, and tell us how, you, how this whole journey started, but it was about eight years ago, I believe. Sure. Well, in uh, 2012, actually uh, January 1st, so it was New Year's Day, I received some uh, emails from Google saying that my, uh, my website contained malware uh, and that they were uh, uh, somehow blocking uh, access. So this this means I had gotten onto one of Google's uh, blacklists. Uh, my website did contain some malware. Uh, it, it was pretty easy to get rid of, but it turns out uh, it's hard to get off of a Google blacklist. That's that's a big problem. So I started looking at Google just a little bit differently. I wondered, first of all, number one, why were they notifying me uh, about this rather than some government agency or some nonprofit organization? Why was a private company notifying me? In other words, who made Google sheriff of the internet? Second, I learned that they had no customer service department, which <laughs> seems very, very strange. So that if you have a problem with Google, uh, then you have a problem because uh, they don't help you solve the problem. Uh, I learned also that although you can get onto a blacklist in a split second, it can take weeks to get off a blacklist. So there have been businesses that have gotten onto their blacklist and have gone out of business. Uh, while they're trying to straighten out uh, the problem. But the thing that really caught my eye was because I've been a programmer my whole life, uh, I couldn't figure out how they were blocking access to my website, not just through their own products, for example, not just through Google.com, the search engine, or through Chrome, which is their browser, 
uh, but through Safari, which is an Apple product, uh, through Firefox, which is uh, a browser run by Mozilla, which is a nonprofit organization. How was Google somehow blocking access through so many different uh, means? I mean, this was, the point is I just started to get kind of more curious about the company. Uh, and later in 2012, uh, I happened to be looking at a growing literature, which was about the power of uh, search rankings to impact sales. So this was in the marketing field, and it just was astonishing. In other words, if you could push yourself up one more notch in their search results, you know, that could, that could make the difference between success or failure for your company, or it could mean a lot more income. And you know, it, it turns out that this, this, this uh, initial research was saying that people really trust those higher ranked search results. So I simply asked a question. I wondered whether if people trust those higher ranked search results, uh, if I could use search results to influence people's opinions, maybe even their votes. That's where everything got started because early 2013, I started doing uh, experiments randomized controlled experiments uh, to see whether I could use uh, search results that are biased somehow or other to shift people's thinking, opinions, and even uh, their votes. And I was completely, completely, completely shocked uh, by what I found. Wow. So it sounds like your uh, experience with the malware uh, notification from Google and they're them blocking you from these other platforms uh, really was independent of your investigation of them. They just sort of serendipitously or coincidentally targeted you for some reason, or mis even mistakenly. I mean, did you ever uh, determine how they were able to do that from a... Oh, yes, I did. In fact, uh, in 2016, I published a, a lengthy investigative article for U.S. News and World Report, uh, which was called The New Censorship. And it was about nine of Google's blacklists and I explained exactly how this works and exactly how they block access to websites and exactly how they're able to block access even on uh, other people's uh, browsers, such as Safari and Firefox. So yeah, I, I did eventually work all that out. Uh, and it's, you know, it's genius on their part. It's genius what they do, but it's also very, very frightening because basically, uh, you know, they have the power to uh, well, as you know, they have the power not just to, uh, you know, to remove you from search results or demote you in search results or uh, to block access to YouTube videos because YouTube is part of Google, of course. That's not, I'm studying YouTube videos right now. Uh, but they can block access uh, to websites, millions of websites. In fact, they do block access to millions of websites every day. That's their biggest blacklist called their quarantine list. Uh, and uh, on January 31st, 2009, uh, for 40 minutes, Google blocked access to the entire internet. Uh, I'm not making that up, by the way. That was reported by The Guardian and uh, Google did not deny it. Uh, and just recently, for I think 11 minutes, they blocked access to every website in Japan. So they they have power which uh, just it boggles the mind and they actually use the power that they have uh, to serve their purposes which are sometimes uh, monetary sometimes political 
Yeah, so I think if we can just summarize it, and then we're, I'm going to let you go really deep in each one of these, is, the, is they have three powers. One is that they're a surveillance agency. Second is that they censor, as you just alluded to. And then, that, then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, they manipulate, which has the implications of that are just profound. So um, you're, you've got some shocking information to share. And uh, you, I think, aptly called... Google, the GSA, the Google Surveillance Surveillance and Ad Agency. So why don't you take it from there? Because I think it's just a brilliant analysis. Uh, Well, sure. You know, we call Google, Google. And it's a cool (laughs) word. Um, It's a a misspelling of a word uh, invented by a mathematician that was meant to to indicate one with a hundred zeros after it. So very large number. So Google means very large number. Again, they, they spelled it a little differently, but that, that's, that's the, the way they chose to name the company. But Google itself, that name doesn't tell you what they actually do. Now, Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, that tells you <laughs> what the company does, right? Uh, Apple Computers tells you what the company does. But uh, Google doesn't. So if you, if you really wanted to have the full name of the company, it would have to be GSA because uh, surveillance is actually what they do so all of the tools that you use uh, that are Google's tools, uh, you know, you may think they serve this purpose or that purpose, but from Google's perspective, they're just surveillance tools. That's all they are. And so they, they dress them up in various ways. The search engine itself, uh, we think of as users, as a search engine that's free. And but from their perspective, it's just another surveillance tool. Google Wallet. Google Docs, Google Drive, um, uh, YouTube. These are surveillance platforms. Uh, In other words, from their perspective, the value that these tools have is it gives them more information about you. So surveillance is what they do. Now, where do do they get their money from? The money comes, almost all of their money uh, comes from advertising. And so uh, because they take the information that they've obtained about you, and your family, and your children, and uh, they monetize it. Uh, more or less, you could say they sell it. They, they, they put vendors in touch with you based on what they know about you, and, and as a result, now make more than $130 billion a year doing so. Uh, so really, the company, if, if we wanted to name it like Kentucky Fried Chicken, it would be called GSA or Google surveillance and advertising. Surveillance is what they do. Advertising is how they make their money. Now, there are three big areas of threat, however, to, you know, to us as individuals, uh, to us as, as citizens of a country. Uh, and you mentioned them. The first, of course, is the sur- surveillance, and which I've just talked about a little bit. And second uh, is the censorship, because they decide what people are going to see or not see. Uh, and that's not just people in the U.S. That's two and a half billion people around the world. That number will soon be over four billion. They decide what you're going to see or not see. I can tell you more about that. And then the third area is the one I study in my experimental research, and that's manipulation. To me, that's the scariest uh, area because it turns out that Google uh, is shaping the opinions and the thinking and the beliefs and the attitudes and the purchases and the votes of 
billions of people around the world without anyone knowing that they're doing so, except a handful of people like me, uh, and perhaps even more shocking, without leaving a paper trail for authorities to trace. So they're using new techniques of manipulation that have never existed before in human history, and they are, for the most part, subliminal. Now, that was, that was a scary term that uh, uh, the people, people used to talk about a lot. They used to talk about, you know, uh, a movie theater in New Jersey that, uh, that put in, uh, you know, subtle signals into the movie suggesting that people buy more, more Coke and buy more popcorn, and supposedly people did. Uh, some, you know, that kind of subliminal manipulation turns out doesn't really work very well. But uh, the point is, the, what I've stumbled onto are a whole set of techniques uh, that Google has developed that work extremely well. Uh, I mean, I can give you some numbers when we start to talk about specifics here, but these are not, these are invisible effects, so they're subliminal in that sense, uh, but they don't produce tiny shifts. They produce enormous shifts in people's thinking very rapidly. Uh, I mean, I've, I've literally, some of the tech, uh, techniques that I've discovered are among the largest uh, behavioral effects ever discovered in the behavioral sciences. So in other words, they're very, very powerful new forms of influence. Uh, the first one I discovered was early 2013, but at this point, I've discovered about a dozen of these, and uh, I'm currently studying, I think, seven or eight of them simultaneously, trying to understand them, quantify them. You know, uh, it's, it's a long process, uh, and I'm always just, of course, playing catch-up because I'm sure that what I've discovered is, is, is the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure what, you know, the capabilities that Google has really go beyond uh, what, I've, what I've been able to discover so far. Yeah, and the world deeply appreciates that, or they, if not currently, they will, because you've uncovered some really amazing information, and uh, largely because you have the training to do it. I mean, you're really well-trained. You've got your PhD in Harvard from psychology, in psychology, so you've got the tools and the disciplines to analyze this. So why don't you uh, describe some of the experiments you performed and elaborate on the amazing power that this tool has to manipulate and shift people's perceptions. Sure. Well, the first effect I discovered um, it was is called SEME, S-E-M-E, which stands for Search Engine Manipulation Effect. And I discovered this in early 2013. Um, and in, in the... the the basic experiment is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, and I should point out that all of these experiments are, uh, meet the very highest standards of, uh, of scientific uh, integrity. So, uh, you know, they're, they're randomized, they're double blind, they're counterbalanced, uh, they're controlled, et cetera. So, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I know how to do good research and I've you know, used the, the highest standards in conducting these, these experiments. So in the simplest experiment, um, basic one, uh, people are randomly assigned to one of three groups. Um, now, who are the people, first of all? Well, in the first experiments uh, that I ran, I had uh, small groups in Southern California 
but they were very diverse. They weren't college sophomores. In other words, I had tried to match uh, demographic characteristics of the U.S. voting population because this was a study about voting. So uh, I had people of all ages um, and uh, and all uh, you know ethnicities uh, uh, and balanced for gender and so on and so forth. So I really did try to make them representative of the U.S. voting population, although they were all from the San Diego area initially in the early experiments. And they're randomly assigned to one of three groups. And one group, uh, they're going to end up seeing uh, search results that are biased in favor of one political candidate. Uh, and the second group, they're going to see search results that are biased in favor of that candidate's opponent, so the other political candidate. And the third group, they're going to be seeing uh, search results that are not biased, that are just, that are, they're, all, they're all mixed up. So that's the control group. Uh, and so the way it works is we ask, first ask our, our participant a bunch of questions. Uh, we give them some very, very basic information, a short paragraph about each candidate. And uh, we then ask, you know, uh, who do you trust? Who do you like? Who would you vote for if you had to vote today? Questions like that. Uh, then we let them do a search. And they're using uh, our search engine, which is called Kadoodle. Kadoodle looks and works exactly like uh, Google does. And we're using, it turns out, real search results that we got from Google and real web pages. So this is very important. We're using real search results, real web pages. The only difference between the three groups is the order in which they see the search results. Everything else is the same. So it's just the order that's changing in the three groups. So after they search for up to 15 minutes, and they, they're, again, they're, they're clicking on search results, they're, they're reading articles, uh, they, can, they can move back and forth between the different pages of search results. Again, it works exactly like Google. Uh, after up to 15 minutes of searching, we ask them those questions again. In other words, we say, okay, who do you like? Who do you trust? Who would you vote for? Questions like that. To see if there's any shift uh, in their thinking and in their voting preferences. Now, I had predicted when we first did this that we would get a shift because I thought people do trust higher ranked search results. And of course, we, were, we had biased the search results, remember, so that if in, in the first group, if someone was clicking on a on a high-ranking search result, that would connect them to a web page, which made one candidate look much better than the other. So we'd rated all the web pages before you know, we ran the experiment. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe people would trust that because it's near the top of the list, and maybe that would produce a shift in their opinion, their thinking, and maybe their voting preference. And I predicted we could get a, a shift in voting preferences of 2 to 3%. That was my prediction. I was way off. We got in that first experiment a shift of 48%, which I thought must be an error because that's crazy. One search and we get a, we get a shift of 48%. So to put it this another way, before they've done the search, we look at how they answer the questions and they're basically split 50-50. And then after the search, we look again at the answer to those questions and then we get this enormous shift. And now, this, was, this was for both candidates, either way. Yeah, we could push them either way. Exactly. We're pushing people. They're randomly assigned to the three groups, so we're pushing them any way we want. Exactly. That's what makes this so important. And I should note here that 
in um, almost all of our experiments, and especially those early ones, we deliberately used undecided voters. So that's the key. You can't uh, easily push the the opinions or voting preferences of people who are uh, who are partisan, who are who are strongly committed, uh, you know, to one party or another. Uh, but people who are undecided, those are the people who are very vulnerable. So in our experiments, we always find a way uh, to uh, to use undecided voters. And so in these early experiments, the way we guaranteed that our voters were undecided uh, was we used people from the U.S. as our participants. But the election that we chose was the 2010 election for the Prime Minister of Australia. So they're real candidates, a real election, real search results, real web pages. And of course, because our participants were from the U.S., they were not familiar with the candidates. So in fact, that's why before they do the search, we get this almost perfect 50-50 split regarding who they're going to vote for because they don't know these candidates. They don't know them at all. So the information that they're getting from the search, that's, that's presumably is, is why uh, we're going to get a shift. It can only be happening because of the information they're getting from the search. And of course, if there's a difference between the groups, which there was, then that's only happening because of the difference in the way we order search results. So that first experiment <clears throat> was astonishing in producing such a big shift, but there was another thing that I noticed, and that is that very few people seem to realize that they were seeing biased search results. Now, that's, this is where it starts to get a little scary, uh, because think about it. If I can produce big shifts and people don't even realize they're seeing biased search results, then this is, a, this is an invisible kind of manipulation. Uh, second experiment, we got a 63% shift. Third experiment, also another very large shift. But what we were doing as we move from experiment to experiment is we were trying to see whether we could fool more and more people uh, into thinking that these are just average search results that are unbiased. And so what we did was a little bit of masking. So Let's say, let's say it's, um, I don't know, Clinton and Trump, which it, which it wasn't, in the, of course, in, the, in those early experiments, but let's say it's Clinton and Trump. What that means is that in group one, you might see pro-Clinton, 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 right? But we did some masking. So just to confuse people a little bit, we did pro-Clinton, Clinton, Clinton, Trump, Clinton, 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 and so on in group one. And then in Again, in the other group, the other bias group, we would have Trump, 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 Clinton, Trump, Trump, Trump. So just, just mix it up a little bit. This is, we call this masking. And it turns out by just doing a little bit of masking, we could fool everybody. In other words, we could get enormous shifts in uh, opinions and voting preferences, enormous shifts, with no one, no one, able to detect the bias in the search results we were showing them. This is where, again, it starts to get scary. Scarier still is when we moved on to do a national study, our first a national study with more than 2,000 people in all 50 states. So now we're out of, we're out of San Diego at this point. So that issue is, we're, we're done with that. And, and again, very large shift. Almost no one 
aware of the bias in the search results, but because at this point we have thousands of people, we can now look at demographic effects, we can now look at subgroups. So when you have that many people, you are, you are gonna find a few people who can see the bias. And to me, this is the scariest thing of all. The very small number of people who can see the bias in the search results, they shift even farther in the direction of the bias, even farther. So in other words, merely being able to detect the bias doesn't protect you from its effects. Fascinating. I have some questions on how the design of the study, just for clarification. So you had a, a list of, of web pages. I would assume it was somewhere around 10 or so to a page with the typical Google strategy. Uh, and the only thing you shifted was the order of those. Say so they were the same pages. Is that correct? The same search results, same pages. That's the only thing that's changing is the order of the search okay. results. That's right. Again, I just want to confirm that before my next question, which is, your best guess as to the mechanism of what happened. I believe the design of the study allowed for only 15 minutes to review. So it would seem, since there's a load of information on there, if it's a candidate's webpage, they can read just one page for 15 minutes. So do you think it was because they, they trusted the objectivity of the search and only clicked on the first few and didn't have an opportunity to review the rest that, that, that caused the distortion? Well, we looked at that very carefully. Uh, that's, that's a very important issue. And what we found is that there's a pattern of clicks uh, which matches the pattern of clicks which have been, which have been found previously in very large studies uh, where, where uh, we've looked, you know, not, not our team, but other people have looked at the pattern of clicks uh, in, in millions of searches, literally in millions of searches. And the pattern of clicks is basically this, that 50% of all clicks go to the top two items. Uh, and 95% of all clicks go to the first page of search results. The point is the pattern of clicks that we got uh, in our experiments matched perfectly the pattern of clicks uh, that had been found in, in, in studies that just look at patterns of clicks and involving millions of searches. So it's that pattern of clicks that's key. In other words, you're right. People are just <laughs> spending most of their time you know, clicking on and reading, you know, content that comes from high-ranking search results. So if those high-ranking search results favor one candidate, that's pretty much all they see. And that impacts their opinions and their voting preferences. So, yeah, that's, you're right. It just has to do with what people click on. Now, we also later, much later, did experiments trying to, trying to figure out why people why people click mainly on those high items and why they trust them so much. Uh, here, I won't bore you with the details because it would take too long, but the point is that it turns out that this is a conditioning phenomenon. We are basically rats in a Skinner box. My, doctor, my doctorate from Harvard, by the way, was with B.F. Skinner. I was his last doctoral student there. <laughs> I know, very kind of ironic. And uh. Yeah, and basically we're all rats in a Skinner box because this is the way it works. Mo almost all the searches that we conduct are for pretty simple things. So for example, um, you know, I recently flew to Boston and I, I don't use Google, no one should ever use Google, but using another search engine, uh, you know, I typed in Boston weather. And what comes up right at the top of the, 
of the search is Boston, you know, just all the numbers describing Boston weather or, or a website to, you know, AccuWeather Boston weather. So the point is, most of the searches we conduct are, are routine searches for simple things. What is the capital of Iowa? I don't even know, but whatever it is, it's going to turn up at, right at the top of the list. So over and over again, we are conditioned to learn that what's at the top is better, what's at the top is truer. And uh, as a result, when the day comes, when we type in something a little more vague, like, uh, you know, what's the best restaurant in Las Vegas? That's, you know, or where should I go on vacation? Or who should I vote for? Or who's the best candidate? Or, you know, see what I'm saying? Uh, when, when, you, when the day comes when you type in something a little more open-ended that doesn't have a clear answer, the fact is we still trust what's at the top of the list. That's why the opinions shift so dramatically because that trust has been conditioned day, uh, every single day. It never stops. That conditioning never stops. So SEAM, the search engine manipulation effect, is, is a list effect. And uh, scientists have been studying list effects for over 100 years, but it's a list effect with a difference because it's supported by a daily regimen of operant conditioning, and that regimen never stops. The training never stops. <laughs> Reinforced continuously. Correct. Yeah. So that is absolutely fascinating, but some people, the immediate response was, so what? Well, tell us the implications of this, because they are beyond profound and frightening as to the, the impact that this uh, behavior shifting can have. Well, well, so what is, is in fact a good response because you could say, all right, well, okay, so Google has this power, presumably. In other words, if they actually presented people with, uh, in, in, especially in, a, in a, you know, an election, if they actually presented people uh, with, uh, you know, with search results that were biased in favor of one candidate, or for that matter, day by day, if they were presenting search results that were biased in favor of, in favor of one dog food uh, or, uh, or one restaurant chain or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, I mean, think of all the tens of thousands of things we search for. If, if they were presenting us with search results that were systematically biased, um, wow, that would be a problem, right? But, but are they? See, that, that's a separate question. You know, do they have the power? Do they use the power? That's the question. So in 2015, a couple of things happened. One is uh, I published the findings from my early experiments, first five experiments, uh, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, that's a pretty prestigious place to publish something. Uh, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to publish in there. Uh, and that particular paper, by the way, I, last time I checked, had been uh, downloaded or accessed uh, from the website of the National Academy of Sciences more than 250,000 times. Now, I've never in my whole career seen anything like that. I mean, you're, if you get a few hundred downloads or a few thousand, that's, that's, that's good. But 250,000, that's, that's a lot. So there's, there's definitely um, an interest here. So I published that in 2015 and also got a phone call from the Attorney General of Mississippi. 
who recently ran for governor there uh, and lost, by the way. He, he, was in, uh, he had sued Google, uh, and Google had sued him back, literally had sued him as an individual. So he was in this big battle with Google, and he was up for re-election as attorney general, and he was very concerned. He was wondering whether Google could somehow mess with, his, with the votes in Mississippi. And I said, oh, yeah, quite easily. And he wanted to know how, and I explained it to him and so on. And then he said, but how would we know if they're doing it? <laughs> okay, that, that just lit my head on fire because I, I, I really, I was just, I mean, from that moment on, I just became obsessed. And then he said that in, in law enforcement, he said what they would do is they would use uh, bots or sock puppets, they're called, uh, fake people, and we would collect data you know, coming into fake people, and we would analyze the data. And I said, well, I said to him, uh, you know, General Hood, I didn't, you know, you, you, you address an attorney general as general, which is kind of funny. Uh, general Hood, I said, that won't, that won't work. Why not? He said, because, I said, because Google has, has a profile on all of us. Uh, the profiles are immense, immensely large. We can talk about that if you want when we talk about uh, surveillance some more. Uh, I mean, people will be shocked, shocked to know how big these profiles are. I said, so the point is, if you set up um, a, a bot or a sock puppet, they know it's not real. It's not a real person. It's, so they won't, you know, and they, and they personalize results. So they'll be sending, you know, uh, non-biased search results to your to your fake people, I said, and you won't learn anything. He said, well, I, he said, I don't know. He said, well, well, then what would we do? How could we find out what they're doing? And so the point is, I, I started to obsess about that. <laughs> and then early 2016, I set up uh, the, the first ever um, monitoring system, uh, which allowed me to look over the shoulders of people as they were uh, conducting election-related searches on Google, Bing, and Yahoo, so all so three search engines, uh, in the months leading up to the 2016 presidential election. So I had uh, 95 um, uh, field agents, we called them, in 24 states, uh, and they were, you know, we kept their identities secret, which was which which took a lot of work. And this is exactly, by the way, what the Nielsen Company does to generate ratings for television shows. They have you know, several thousand families. Their, their identities are secret. Uh, they equip the families with special boxes, which will allow Nielsen to tabulate you know, what, what programs they're watching. And Nielsen does that now, by the way, in 47 countries. Uh, so the point is, inspired by the Nielsen model, uh, we recruited our field agents. We equipped them with custom software that we designed, which is uh, which is passive software. In other words, no one can detect the fact that they're, they have the software on their computers. But that software allowed us basically to look over their shoulders as they conducted election-related searches. And so we got our first trickle of data coming in in May of 2016. The closer we got to the election, uh, the more field agents we had, the more data we were collecting. And we ended up preserving... Uh, 13,207 uh, election-related searches and the nearly 100,000 web pages 
to which the search results uh, linked. And then we, uh, you know, after the election, now that we had preserved this information, because remember, we know, we know what, the, what, what search results these people were actually seeing. So we know where these, these links were occurring. And so after the election, we rated the web pages for bias, either pro-Clinton or, or pro-Trump. I personally uh, uh, supported Hillary Clinton in that election. Uh, and, 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 and then we just did an analysis to see whether there was any bias in the search results people were seeing. Um, the results we got were a, a crystal clear, highly significant statistically. This is something I tried to explain to a reporter and she just, she just you know, I mean, I've taught statistics at the doctoral level. I've been using statistics in my work for almost 40 years, but I just couldn't quite get this reporter to understand what I was saying. But the point is, we, the, the results we got were just significant uh, at the point zero zero one levels. And what, what that's, that says is, you know, we can be pretty, pretty confident that, that the bias we were seeing was real and, and didn't occur just because of some random forces. The point is, what we found was a pro-Clinton bias in all 10 search positions on the first page of Google search results, but not on Bing or Yahoo. That's very important. So there it was. I mean, uh, you know, there was a, a, a significant pro-Clinton bias on Google. Now, because of the experiments at this point that I, that I had been doing now uh, since 2013, I also was also able to calculate with that level of bias how many votes could have been shifted. And, you know, it depends on a number of things, but the bare minimum uh, would have been uh, about 2.6 million votes would have shifted uh, to Hillary Clinton. Those are, in other words, those are, those are undecided people who are going online, getting information about anything that's election related, anything, and being brought to web pages that are uh, basically pro-Clinton. And, you know, that shifts opinions and it shifts votes, that we know for sure. So basically, I calculated that with that level of bias uh, over a period of months, that would have shifted among undecided voters uh, somewhere between 2.6 and 10.4 million votes, uh, with no one knowing that they've been influenced, number one. Number two, without leaving a paper trail for authorities to trace. The paper trail issue, that's a very interesting issue. Um, last year, in 2018, last year, uh, in one of the leaks of, of material from Google uh, to the media, uh, one of the, one of the uh, email conversations uh, within Google was about Google's, uh, uh, rather Trump's travel ban. And one of the employees says to other employees there, how can we use ephemeral experiences? Okay, ephemeral experiences. I'm actually writing an article now about ephemeral experiences to change people's opinions about Trump's travel ban. In other words, to... To, to get people to, to be opposed to it, to his travel ban. And uh, that's the key to everything here. The point is people within 
Google themselves, they know how powerful ephemeral experiences are. And search results are ephemeral experiences. What are ephemeral experiences? They're experiences that are just, you have in a, with your computer in which you're shown content that is fleeting. It's generated on the fly just for you. It impacts you, then it disappears, and it's gone forever. It's not stored anywhere. Uh, that's the key to all this. If, if you are influencing people using ephemeral experiences, as that Google employee said, then that's gold because you can shift opinions and thinking and attitudes and beliefs, uh, and no one knows it's happening, number one. Number two, there's no paper trail. Authorities can't go back in time and recreate that experience. It's, it's, I mean, it's just, it's brilliant and it's frightening and it's diabolical. Absolutely. Great summary. So that, uh, I think it's important to emphasize that uh, you, as you previously stated, that you were a Clinton supporter. So the bias you uncovered does not suggest you were biased because you were her supporter and you covered a bias in favor of her, which would be uh, not uh, beneficial to her in any way. In fact, she later, when Trump, I, be I believe, uh, tweeted or acknowledged your testimony to Congress, uh, she responded adversely and denounced you. Yes, yes. This, 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 uh, this was this was horrible. This, this actually set in motion, uh, you know, what has so far been one of the most horrible periods of my life. But yes, I testified before Congress about uh, you know the seam research and and other research because that was that was pretty you know that was just the beginning, and uh, and and I and I did indicate that in 2016, according to our you know the the. 13,000 um, uh, searches that we, that we uh, preserved, uh, yes, that the, again, the bias in Google search could have shifted somewhere between 2.6 and 10.4 million votes to uh, Hillary Clinton. Yes, I was a Hillary Clinton supporter. So I did report that as part of my congressional testimony. Now, a few weeks later, President Trump uh, tweeted about my testimony. He didn't get the numbers uh, quite right. Um, obviously, you know, he, he makes lots of mistakes and he didn't get the numbers quite right, but he, you know, he did no harm in his tweet for, uh, as, far, as far as I was concerned. But then Hillary Clinton uh, responded to his tweet saying that my work had been debunked and was based on data from 21 undecided voters. I don't even... I, I don't know where either of those things came from because my work has never been debunked. I'm not even sure what debunked means, but the point is 21 undecided voters. This was a massive amount of data that we had uh, preserved and we spent months analyzing it. So this, 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 you know, then there was a deluge of uh, mainstream newspaper articles, including in the New York times, uh, just dismissing me and my work and, you know, calling me a fraud and saying my, uh, you know, my work was garbage and so on. I, I mean, I've had a spotless reputation as a scholar and scientist for almost 40 years. And so this was, this was brutal for me. This was uh, horrible. Still is. It still is. It's, uh, I, I don't understand it. I can't understand it. I can't well, understand how, how you can just destroy someone's reputation. Uh, well, don't take it personally. <laughs> this is a classic strategy that they use to discredit 
anyone who opposes their agenda. Tobacco industry do it, did it. Wireless industry is doing it. The GMO industry in Monsanto did it. I mean, that is the absolute standard playbook strategy. Discredit the people who are, who are speaking out and most reputable and the loudest. Because it's very, why do they do it? Because it's effective and it works and it requires very little investment on their end. Well, um, I, uh, I'm a researcher, you know, I'm, I'm not a politician. I, uh, I'm a researcher. I, uh, you know, I report what I, what I find. If I had found pro-Trump search results, I would have reported that. I reported uh, what I found. I mean, it was, um, you know, uh, politically speaking, it was, I thought it was great that they were helping Hillary Clinton uh, to get votes. She actually won the popular vote in 2016 by over 2.8 million votes. And I had predicted uh, at a minimum they could shift 2.6 million. So if you, that, what that means is if you take Google out of the equation in 2016, it means that the popular vote might have been very, very close. Uh, because again, I know that they had the ability to shift at least 2.6 million votes. So the point is I report what I find. So the, the fact that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excoriated, I'm trashed by, you know, mainstream news and by Hillary Clinton herself. I mean, I, I just can't even, I, I can't understand it. I mean, I've, been a, I've been a supporter of the, Clint, of the Clintons for decades. I have a, uh, you know, a signed letter from uh, Bill Clinton from when he was president, you know, up on the wall over my over my desk. I still haven't taken it down, although maybe I should. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess nothing personal. They're they're just opposing anyone that's uh, getting in their way, and you certainly were an obstacle. So, uh, I still don't think the average viewer listener is aware of the full implications of what you just said. So let's extend it to a worldwide view, and you've made some pretty amazing projections of what Google is to has and is doing to this day, how they're influencing elections around the entire planet. You know, I was just thinking that, so I'm glad you're shifting things in that direction because, um, you know, I, I find a lot of people when they look at my work, they just keep thinking about the U.S. and U.S. elections and, uh, you know, the problem is much bigger than that. As I, as I explained when I testified before Congress, you know, the reason why I'm, I'm speaking out about these issues uh, is because, first of all, I believe in democracy. I believe in the free and fair election. Uh, and I think it's important that we preserve democracy and preserve the free and fair election. Uh, and... Uh, I think that's more important than my support for any particular candidate or party. To me, it's pretty straightforward. But the problem is, is much bigger than elections or democracy or the United States because, uh, you know, I had calculated back in 2015 that even, even at that point in time, uh, Google's search engine, because more than 90% of search worldwide is conducted on Google, that's an astounding number. It is yes. astounding. It's actually 92% currently. And it, has, shocking. It, it has been for uh, about a decade now. But because, because basically for most people in the world, Google is the gateway to knowledge. It's the gateway to all knowledge of any sort. Uh, 
But, but you know, what has to be refined is the gateway to the, to the suppression of knowledge. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's kind of a separate issue, which I'd happy, be happy to yeah, talk we'll about. We'll go into that later, but finish sure. this, this threat. But, yeah, but, but, you know, because people around the world rely on Google to, to, to find information, uh, I had calculated in 20, as of 2015 that Google was determining the outcomes of upwards of 25% of the national elections in the world. Now, how, how can that be? Well, <laughs> it's, it's because a lot of elections are very close. Now, that's the, that's, that's the, the key to this, to understanding this. So, in other words, we actually looked at the margins, the win margins in elections around the world, national elections, which tend to be very close. Local elections are, tend not to be so close, but, um, but national elections tend to be very close. That 2010 Australian election, for example, the win margin was something like 0.2%. It was less than 1%. So if an election is very, very close, and you know people are just searching for various topics related to an election over a period of weeks or months, and if Google is biased, you know, if, if the results they're getting on Google are biased, uh, toward one candidate, well, that shifts a lot of votes among undecided people. And it's very, very simple for them to, to, to flip an election. Or, as, as, as uh, an article I published in Politico put it, to rig an election. I, I didn't put that title on my article. They, uh, the folks at Politico did. But uh, it's, it's very, very simple for, uh, for Google to do that. Now, they can do it um, deliberately, uh, which is kind of scary. In other words, some, you know, some top executives at Google could decide you know, who, who they want to win an election in, in uh, South Africa or the UK or anywhere. It could be a, a, just a rogue employee at Google who does it. And, and you're thinking, well, that's impossible. How could a single employee at, at Google do rig an election. Actually, it's incredibly simple. Uh, you know, your viewers may have heard of the famous uh, Google Street View scandal. Um, a few years ago, a professor, just like me, um, figured out that the Google Street View vehicles, which drive up and down our streets, photographing our homes and our businesses, which at that point have been driving around you know, uh, the streets of 30 countries for more than four years, in, <clears throat> that the Google Street View vehicles weren't just taking photographs of our houses, they were also vacuuming up all of our Wi-Fi data in more than 30 countries for four years, <laughs> literally just capturing our Wi-Fi data, capturing our passwords, capturing our whatever activity we're engaged in, capturing which websites we're visiting, uh, which allowed them to figure out, you know, sexual orientation, political uh, leanings, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, uh, so the, Google got caught, again, just because of someone just like me, a researcher, figured it out. And Google got investigated and they got sued and this and that. Google blamed the entire Street View project on one employee, Marius Milner. One employee. They blamed it on just one employee. Because Google, because Google employees, you know, themselves have a lot of power. They can change a parameter here and there, uh, and they have a lot of power. And Marius Milner, again, he got he got blamed for this entire project. So naturally, then they fired him. 
No. No, <laughs> they didn't fire him. Marius Milner is, a, is still at Google, and he's a hero at the company. And if you look on his LinkedIn page, you'll see he identifies himself as working for Google, and his, his, he says his profession is hacker. So they don't fire people like that at Google. So, you know, an individual employee, a rogue employee, could flip an election. And then there's the third possibility. The third possibility is, you know, they've got the algorithm running. They don't, they don't care about, uh, you know, uh, Cameroon, which is in Africa. They don't care about Africa. They don't pay any attention. They don't care, let's say, or Nigeria or something. They don't care. And so the algorithm favors one candidate over another. And, and, you, and you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, why would the algorithm favor? Because the algorithm is built that way. It's built always to favor one dog food over another. Uh, you know, uh, one, one, I don't know, flavor of ice cream over another and one candidate over another. It has no equal time rule built into it. It always is going to favor one candidate or, over another. And that can flip a close election. And that's the scariest possibility because now you've got an algorithm a computer program, which is, which is an idiot. It's an idiot deciding who, who rules us. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. The implications are quite profound. And uh, what you described actually is illegal behavior, but because these are ephemeral experiences and they leave no paper trail, they are very difficult to prove. But if you've set up some preemptive uh, capturing strategies to, to do this, you can document this because there are rules, regulations, and penalties for contributing to campaigns that have to be acknowledged. And if you exceed those, you are going to be fined and maybe even put to jail. So why don't you expand on that? Because I think that the implications of that are really quite profound. Yes. Well, you know, I think we should be clear here. There's, there's not only are there no laws or regulations which restrict the way uh, Google ranks uh, its search results, there are no laws or regulations regarding that. Uh, in fact, the courts have said over and over again, case after case, that Google can, can order its search results any old way it pleases. They're just exercising, I'm not kidding you, their, their right to free speech. That's their, <laughs> Google's First Amendment right. Uh, and by the way, the courts have also said that if they want to uh, eliminate you uh, from their search results or demote you, uh, and, I, and, I, and I know you have some experience with these types of things. Sure, um, yeah, I know, I know, it's terrible. Uh, the courts have said uh, they can do it because they're just exercising their right to free speech. They can, in other words, they can, they can take your, your business and destroy it. Mm -hmm. uh, a rogue employee can do it. An executive can do it. The algorithm itself could do it. Uh, and the courts have said, no problem, no problem. Now, where the legal issue arises is in the context of an election. As you pointed out, there are laws uh, that say that if you donate to a campaign, uh, and you donate above a certain amount, you know, you have to uh, declare that. And of course, there are also limits on how much you can donate unless you're donating to these, these new uh, super PACs. 
So, uh, you know, you could say that if that if Google's uh, search results or search suggestions or YouTube videos and on and on and on are, are favoring one candidate, that could be considered an in-kind donation, which they're not declaring. And one could put a value on it. Uh, and so one, one could go after them in that way. Now, has anyone done that yet? No. Uh, one reason is because the monitoring system I set up in 2016 was a unique project. Uh, I set up a similar system in 2018, captured even more data, should be happy to, to talk about. That was another unique project. And to my knowledge, no one else has done this anywhere in the world. In other words, no one is, no one is, is, is setting up systems to preserve, to capture ephemeral uh, content. And you have to do this right. You have to do it on a large scale. Uh, you, you have to be looking over the shoulders. You must look over the shoulders of real people. In other words, you can't do it with bots. Uh, it's very, very, very expensive and labor-intensive to, to run a project like this. My opinion, though, these monitoring systems must be set up, and not just in the U.S., they must be set up around the world because it's the only protection we, we, we could possibly have, I mean, as a species. It's the only way we can protect ourselves from uh, you know, new types of uh, online technologies uh, that, have, that can be used to, to influence us. Now, uh, what, one of the leaks from Google was an eight-minute video, uh, which you can find online. You can actually find it. The video is called The Selfish Ledger. And this is an internal video at Google uh, uh, prepared by one of their, their, their advanced, you know, kind of rocket science divisions, their X division, uh, in which they, they explain that they have the ability to re-engineer humankind. And they specifically mention in this video, uh, according to company values, now, I, I made a transcript of this, which I'd be happy to share uh, with your, your viewers. I can get you a link to it, uh, see if people want to, you know, really dig into this. But, uh, you know, this is serious stuff. You know, I, it's, it's not just me discovering, you know, some manipulative techniques and trying to quantify them. I'm saying there's an awareness in the company of the power of ephemeral experiences, an awareness, there's awareness in the company of the power the company has to reshape humankind. So this, this is a, a kind of threat, uh, in my opinion, that humanity has never faced. No, no dictator, no Mussolini, no Hitler, no dictator anywhere has ever had you know, even a tiny fraction of the power uh, that this company has. Yeah, it it really is brilliant if you look at it objectively. I mean, yes, you, I agree how, with that. How could you design a more sophisticated and effective strategy to control the population? And and virtually it, it's hidden. No one, virtually no one understands or knows this. Well, in twenty, um, let's see now if I can figure out which year it is. Twenty sixteen, uh, I made my second discovery. Since then, they've been coming faster and faster. But twenty sixteen, I discovered another. A type of manipulation that uh, that that, uh, that Google uh, uh, is capable of, and 
also got incredible numbers. You know, when you start to type a search term, so you're typing letters into a search box or a search bar, uh, Google flashes suggestions at you. So this is sometimes called their, their autocomplete tool. Uh, I'm just going to call them search suggestions. And so they're, they're flashing search suggestions at you. Now, when they first developed this, they would flash 10. They always flash 10 at you. Uh, I, think, um, I think Yahoo still does 10, and Bing maybe does 8, or vice versa. So they still show you those long lists. <laughs> and, um, you know, initially the, the idea was they were going to save you some time. That's the way they, that's the way they presented this, this new feature of search suggestions. Uh, they're going to save you some time. They're going to anticipate, you know, uh, based on your history or based on what other people are searching for, they're going to anticipate what it is you're looking for. So you don't have to type the whole thing. Just click on one of the suggestions. And I think it really started out that way. But then it changed into something else. It changed into a tool for manipulation. And uh, in June, I believe, of 2016, a small news organization uh, posted a video on YouTube, which is kind of funny because uh, YouTube's part of Google. Um, it was a seven-minute video in which uh, they had a very cool guy just ultra cool guy uh, explaining that that their news outfit had discovered that uh, it was virtually impossible to get negative search suggestions related to Hillary Clinton, but easy to get them for other people, including Donald Trump. And they were very concerned about this because uh, I don't know, maybe that could influence people somehow. So. Uh, you know, I, I tried this myself, and I've, I have a wonderful, uh, um, you know, uh, image that I preserved showing this. Uh, I, I typed in Hillary Clinton is. I did it on Bing and on Yahoo. And I got, you know, those, those long lists, you know, uh, eight and ten items uh, saying Hillary Clinton is the devil. Hillary Clinton is sick. Hillary Clinton is, you know, and all negative things. And all things that people were actually searching for. Now, how do you know that? Because we checked on uh, Google Trends. Google Trends shows you what people are actually searching for. And sure enough, people were actually searching for all these negative things related to Hillary Clinton. Those are the most popular search terms. So we tried it on Google, Hillary Clinton is, and we got Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton is winning. Hillary Clinton is awesome. And that's it. Now, you check those phrases on Google Trends and you find no one's searching for those. Who's typing in Hillary Clinton is awesome? Nobody. No one. But that's what they're showing you in the search, in their search suggestions. So that, again, got my research gears running again. And I started doing experiments because I, I said, wait a minute, why would they do this? What is the point? And here's what I found in a series of experiments. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yeah, just by manipulating search suggestions, I could turn a 50-50 split among undecided voters into a 90-10 split. Wow. With no one having the slightest idea that they've been 
manipulated. So search suggestions, this became a second effect, the SSE or the search suggestion effect. It's, it's an incredibly powerful tool, incredibly powerful tool, uh, which you can't, it's not like billboards, okay? Yeah. In, in other words, a billboard, you put up a billboard, you know, supporting your run for governor, right? And I put up my own billboard across the street, right? I can counteract your billboard. Uh, same with your television commercial. Same with your radio ad. Whatever it is you're doing, I can counteract it, right? I can fight it. But Google search suggestions, how would you, how would you fight those? How would you counteract them? And of course, they're ephemeral. Wow, ephemeral again. They're ephemeral. <laughs> so there's no, there's no record kept of them. And you can't go back in time and reconstruct what they were showing people. So now we have a second effect. I mean, I could go on and on with, with more effects, but I'm just, I'm just trying to give you a glimpse here of, uh, you know, the, the way the process has worked for me, the way I've stumbled onto things and, and what I've found. And, I, you know, and again, I, I, re, I report what I find. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't care, uh, you, know, which, you know, which candidate or, or which, uh, which, which political yeah. party, They're you know. Neutral. Yeah. Well, objective research. I'm not. I'm not neutral. Sides should be. Well, I'm not neutral. I'm not neutral as a as a human being. Neutral with respect to the outcomes of your research. Correct. Yes. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. Obviously, every all we all have biases. So I think you've really highlighted and illustrated an enormous pieces of information that most everyone watching this was absolutely clueless, as is most of the population. So. Uh, I'd, I'd like to go on to uh, eventually, maybe come back to some of the, well, let's go into the censorship and the blacklisting. Then I want to really focus on what can we effectively do because this can get very discouraging and hopeless. I mean, you've got 92% of the world using Google. I mean, you just, just give up now. I mean, we're going to control everything. But, the, you know, I want to present some hope here because there are very spear, fit, clear specific strategies that we can use that can actually make a difference. But let's talk a little bit about censorship and blacklisting, which is, you know, we, we've been focusing on the manipulation and I want to talk about those a little bit because I think that that is, those are other tools that they're using that, you know, it's going to encourage more of us to engage in these, these recommendations that you're going to go over shortly. Sure. Well, censorship is a, in my opinion, is the second big threat that uh, companies like Google, uh, to lesser extent Facebook, to much lesser extent Twitter, uh, you know, that the, these are threats that these companies pose to humankind. And they'll, there could be a company after Google, right, which could do the same thing. So um, the point is that, uh, you know, Google is, is determining what uh, billions of people right now, two and a half billion people around the world, see or don't see. That's the problem. And because, in other words, if they, if they uh, let's say it's a, it's a health issue, you know, whether certain kinds of vitamins are helpful or not, uh, or certain kinds of foods are helpful or not, uh, if, if, if they eliminate from search results uh, a certain perspective, let's say, or a certain website or a certain set of websites, how would anyone know that? See, that's, 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 that's the problem with censorship is you don't know what you don't know. 
And, you know, is there evidence that Google at times just demotes or removes uh, material from its search results? Absolutely. Uh, th I mean, that's, this has been known for a long time. And again, Google now and then gets sued uh, by someone who says, you know, you've demoted me or you've removed me. Uh, so you know, a lot of the stuff is, is kind of out in the open. I mean, at one point, Google demoted JCPenney, for example. Uh, yeah, because JCPenney, they said they were violating Google's policies because they were using what are called SEO techniques. SEO is a big industry, search engine optimization, it's called, uh, to, try to, to try to boost their rankings in Google search results, which, which every company does. Every company does that. But uh, somehow or other, they, they, they focused on JCPenney and they demoted them. Uh, I mean, by, by when I, I mean, this is a big demotion because they didn't just knock them off the first page. They knocked them like into the, you know, the 50th position, which no one ever sees. Uh, you know, so there's, there, there are many, many cases now in which we know Google does this, you know, quite deliberately. There's a company called eVentures based in Florida where uh, Google decided they didn't, they didn't like the quality of their web pages. There's so much subjectivity going into this. It's horrible. And they, they literally uh, blocked access to, I think, about almost all of the uh, URLs that this eVentures company had, which is, I, I'm thinking was about 100. Um, and, you know, no explanation. They never explain. See, that's the other problem. That's, that's why, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, one of the presidential candidates now, has sued Google. Because, uh, you know, after the first presidential debate, um, they shut down her ability to, uh, to, to place ads. And she was the most searched for candidate at the time. And she needed to place, you know, those ads to be running on Google uh, in order to raise funds. And they, sh they, they literally blocked access. They shut her down for, I think, about six hours immediately following the debate. Well, if, again... Think of it from the perspective of the public, not the candidate. The public just doesn't even, doesn't even see. They don't see the ads. They're not seeing the search results or the ads or the search suggestions, whatever it may be, and you don't know what you don't know. So you don't even know that you're being manipulated. You don't understand. So it turns out that Google censors all kinds of content in all kinds of ways, and as I mentioned earlier, I wrote a big article about this for U.S. News and World Report called The New Censorship, uh, and I talked about Google's blacklist. I focused on nine of them. Uh, later in a little addendum, we added a tenth one, but the point is, I, I said, you know, this is, these blacklists exist in the company. Now, had I ever seen one? No. Uh, but I'm a programmer. I know how, I know how this works. Uh, you know, I know Google suppresses content, so I wrote about the blacklists. I wrote about uh, you know, and I explained exactly how they worked, and I uh, talked about the, you know, the, because uh, they have, every, every aspect of Google has a blacklist. So you, there are YouTube blacklists, for example. Whatever Google does, there are blacklists always. Now, just a few months ago, this was after I testified before Congress, um, a new whistleblower turned up. His name is Zachary Voorhees, and he left Google after serving there eight and a half years as a senior software engineer. Uh, and unlike the other 
whistleblowers, he walked out of there with uh, more than 950 pages of documents and a video. And among those documents were two blacklists. They were actually called blacklists within the company. He actually walked out with two of their blacklists. So uh, meanwhile, I should point out that when I testified before Congress, just before I did, Google's representative testified in the same hearing. And he was asked point blank, I think it was by Senator Josh Hawley, uh, does Google have blacklists? And he said under oath, no, we have no blacklists. Well, I think testifying under oath before Congress isn't illegal, right? <laughs> you mean you <laughs> well you mean lying well people yeah. no people do well, lie I meant to say yeah. lie yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah yeah no people do lie and and back uh, a long time ago congress uh used to exercise its authority to punish people for lying before congress and of course uh, michael cohen uh, trump's uh, attorney uh, is in prison now in part for lying before Congress, so it, it can happen. But generally speaking, now you, you, can lie, you can lie to Congress and no one cares and Congress doesn't do anything. The last time Congress actually just, you know, used its, its, its muscle, literally its, its, its police, it has a kind of police, you know, to arrest someone for lying. I think that was 1930, if I'm not mistaken. So they don't, they don't really do that anymore. And yeah, you can just lie yeah. all you want. I'm reminded of the presidents of the four or five U.S. tobacco companies in the late 90s. Yes, yes, yes. Every single one of them said smoking was not addictive and right. doesn't cause cancer. In the late right. 90s. And then right. there, was, there was no, there was no rep repercussion for those, those testimonies. Right. All right, so this discouraging. Oh, can I can I just talk a little bit more about the censorship? Because sure, absolutely. Because right now, what's happening in the U.S. is there's 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 a lot of uh, hullabaloo about Google's censorship, uh, and it's uh, it's coming mainly from uh, conservatives, conservative candidates, conservative organizations, and uh, you know, and and there is evidence that. Um, that Google is aggressively censoring conservative content. So there is some evidence uh, to, to support this. And I think conservatives, you know, have reason to be uh, concerned. However, you know, uh, they don't just censor conservative content. So this issue is much bigger than that because I've, had, I've received, you know, communications from people in socialist organizations, progressive organizations, uh, whose content has been uh, censored uh, by Google. So you could be anybody and be censored by Google. Remember, remember that even individual employees at Google uh, sometimes have the power uh, to make changes like that, to demote or remove. Uh, a, another senior software engineer at Google, his name is Shamit Baluja, who's been at Google since almost since the very beginning, uh, he published a novel that no one's ever heard of, and it's called The Silicon Jungle. And of course, that title comes from, you know, a very old book from the early 1900s called *The Jungle*, which is a remarkable book uh, about the meatpacking industry, uh, you know, in the United States. Uh, and *The Silicon Jungle* is about Google. It's fictional, but it's about Google, and it's about the power that individual employees at Google have 
to make or break any company or any individual. I mean, it's a fantastic novel. Uh, I, I asked Belusia how Google let him get away with publishing it, and he said, well, they made me promise I would never promote it, and that's why no one's ever heard of this book. Um, but, you know, there's no question uh, that, you know, that they do suppress content, and it's not just uh, conservative content. It's any content they want to. Another article I'm working on looks at, um, uh, you know, how Google operates in different countries. It turns out, yes, in the U.S., Google leans heavily to the left, but in Cuba, they lean heavily to the right. Uh, and of course, it came to light uh, just not long ago that Google was about to go back into China uh, to help the Chinese government control its population. That's their the politics that we we think they have in the U.S., which are pretty clear. Uh, they don't have those politics everywhere. They do what they want to do that serves their company, uh, serves the bottom line, presumably, or serves other agendas that they may have. Uh, but a lot of this is just about money. Uh, and they can censor any content anywhere. That's the problem. So the question I keep raising is, who gave this private company, which is not accountable to any of us, who gave this private company the, the ability to, to determine what billions of people around the world will see or will not see? That's the bigger issue here. Yes, and you go into that, as do others, in a, a video documentary that is just outstanding. It's called The Crooked Line. The creepy line. line. Oh, sorry, the cre creepy line, yes. A uh, yeah. uh, direct quote from uh, Eric Schmidt. Right. And uh, it really, I mean, be, it, the, the reason I mentioned that is that traditional media have very serious constraints placed on them. Uh, but Google, which is far more penetrating and far more uh, effective at influencing people, has none of these constraints. Uh, that's right. And as a result, there, uh, by the way, creepy line, I, I want to say I highly yes. recommend to people. Uh, it does focus quite a bit on my research, but it's got lots, there, there are lots of people in there besides me. Jordan, uh, Peterson. Jordan Peterson is in there. Uh, you know, uh, Peter Schweitzer, who uh, has become actually a good friend over the years. Um, uh, you know, there, there are lots of good people and there's lots of good data and it explains my research very clearly, which is, which is nice, which is wonderful. It, it explains my research better than I explained my research. <laughs> the Creepy Line is available. Um, it, it premiered about a year ago, first in New York, then DC and so on. Uh, but it's available now on iTunes and on Amazon. And it's, uh, I think it costs three or four dollars to, to watch, uh, unless you're an Amazon Prime member. If you're an Amazon Prime member, it's, it's, it's free. free. It's free to watch. Uh, and you can get information about it at thecreepyline.com or you can just search for it um, on, on Amazon. It's an excellent, excellent film. It's broadly recommended. It's an absolute outstanding follow-up to this interview. It, it, it really is well done. So in that video documentary, you explain some different strategies. And maybe we can jump to that unless you want, there's anything sure. else you want to comment on with respect to blacklisting and uh, censorship. Well, I just want to say that 
censorship, you know, is, I just want to say that the, at the moment, I'm concerned that the censorship issue is being framed, uh, you know, as a conservative issue. Uh, so I'm repeating myself a little bit, but I, it's, this is worth repeating because this is, this is not a conservative issue. So my conservative friends insist that it is. It's not. This is a much, much bigger issue. And remember, you don't know what you don't know. So, you know, when content is suppressed, you don't know it's been suppressed because you can't see it. So literally, when I, I'm seriously, when I'm online now, I'm so conscious of this that I'm being shown something and I'm, I'm always asking, what am I not being shown? And generally speaking, I don't have a way of answering that question. So, you know, I don't, that's one reason I, I stopped using Google's uh, search engine years ago uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm very nervous about what it is they're not showing me. And of course, I'm nervous too about the order in which they're showing me you know, whatever it is they're showing me. So, you know, censorship, I'm just saying, is a, it's, it's a serious issue, it's, and it's not just a conservative issue. I just want to emphasize that. Yeah, and you are, there are many videos that you've done over the years, and most of, many of them are sponsored by conservative uh, agencies and groups. Uh, and you begin your, your, not interview, but your presentation by saying, listen, I'm not one of you, I'm a liberal. <laughs> but they all love you because you're telling the truth about a very important issue. Well, they love me because it serves their purposes right now because, in fact, the, you know, their, their content is being suppressed. Uh, and, and more than that, there are manipulations being used uh, to, to defeat conservative uh, candidates and conservative causes. So, so, so right now, yes, conservatives like me, uh, but I'm not a conservative, no. I've been uh, pretty much more of an independent, a centrist, I would say. I lean left, uh, but uh, no, I'm definitely not a conservative. But that you know, this is not a conservative issue. It's it's really been a problem for me that the people who pay most attention to my work and who want to interview me and invite me to give talks, uh, they virtually always all of them are conservatives, and that's a problem. That's a problem because they're 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 people who now who associate me with conservatives, that, which is absurd. I'm I don't have a conservative bone in my body. All right. Well, let, thank you for letting us know that it pl places it in proper context. But you've written, uh, I is it a website? Certainly a, a, an article, which is my seven simplesteps.com, I believe, that outlines some of the recommendations, which, uh, you know, uh, in my view, you'd have to be irrational not to implement into your life immediately and share them with your families and friends because it's not going to cost you virtually anything. There's, there's a few suggestions that have a small cost with it, but it's more than worth it. So maybe you can review those now. Sure. If you go to my 7 you can either spell out the word seven or just use the numeral seven. It doesn't matter. My 7 That will take you to an article uh, which I wrote, uh, which is about seven simple steps that I've used to try to uh, you know, uh, increase my privacy, uh, you know, uh, online. Now, I, my first sentence is more or less, I have not received a targeted ad on my cell phone or my laptop computer since 2014. And, and, and most people are shocked by that because they're just bombarded with targeted ads constantly. And more and more people are telling me that, you know, they're just, 
having a conversation with someone. So they're not, they're not even doing anything online per se. They're just having a conversation, but they're, you know, their phone is nearby or they're having a conversation in their home and they have Amazon Alexa in their home or they have Google home, these personal assistants. And the next thing they know, they start getting targeted ads related to what they were talking about. And this is relatively recent because my girlfriend yes, was, I was talking to her, Aaron, and we were talking about going to the office that I have in South Florida and staying at a specific hotel. And it was just our dialogue. And literally right after we hung up, she had a targeted ad at her Facebook page for that hotel. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. See, this is, this is, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to divert here slightly, but this is the surveillance problem, mm-hmm. which we really didn't talk about very much. But the point is that, you know, there are ways to, to use, uh, you know, the internet and to use the, uh, you know, uh, tablets and mobile phones and so on to, to preserve or protect your privacy. But, uh, Almost no one does that. Mm-hmm. So the, the fact is that, that we're now being surveilled uh, 24-7, with, generally speaking, with no awareness that they were, we're even being surveilled. So, you know, maybe some people are aware that when they do searches on Google, you know, the, there's the, the searches are preserved and the search history is preserved forever. So that, you know, over time, tens of thousands of searches, you know, there are patterns uh, that Google can, can detect based on your, your searches and, you know, which websites you're visiting. But, you know, it goes so far beyond that now because now we're being, you know, surveilled uh, through personal assistance so that, so that when we speak, we're, we're being observed. Uh, But again, it goes beyond that because a a few years ago, Google bought, the, the Nest company, which makes a smart thermostat. And shortly after they bought the company, they put microphones into the smart thermostats. And the latest versions of the smart thermostats have microphones and cameras. Uh, Google has been issued patents in recent years, which uh, give them basically ownership rights over ways of analyzing sounds that are picked up by microphones in people's homes. Uh, so that they've developed ways, for example, of, of listening in to determine whether your kids are brushing their teeth enough, uh, to determine the nature of your sex life, uh, to determine whether there's a lot of arguing going on in the house. That's easy, obviously, because they can monetize all that. See, they can hook you up with, uh, with dentists. They can hook you up with uh, sex therapists. They can uh, you know, hook you up uh, with uh, you know uh, mental health services, relationship coaches, et cetera, et cetera. So you know there's that. Now there's also location. Location tracking has gotten completely out of hand, and you know we've learned even in recent months uh, mm-hmm. that even when you disable uh, location tracking, at least you think you've disabled it uh, on your mobile phone, you're still being tracked. Yeah, can, could you expand on too? Because New York Times did a re- recent investigation report uh, just a few weeks ago, I believe, that expanded on this and how they sell right. this data to the, to the data warehouses. And the, so, if you, if you could summarize that, I think you could do it brilliantly. Well, first of all, you have to you have to understand that that if someone is able to track your location, that tells them a lot about you. 
So again, we don't, we tend not to, you know, we're so naive about such things, but uh, you know, think about it. If someone's tracking your location, uh, they're probably going to know whether you're, you're cheating on your spouse because they know where you're parking and where you're, where you're spending your nights. Uh, they know where you're shopping just by your location. Uh, they know where, uh, you know, where you're relaxing. They know everything. Uh, you know, your location is important. If you attend a political rally, your location tells them you attended a political rally and they know which rally you attended and so on and so forth. So location is extremely valuable. We don't think much about it. But what, what these new investigations have found, the New York Times and others, is that the, the aggressiveness of location tracking is far beyond what anyone imagined. For example, let's say that you, you have a, an Android phone. Android is, is owned by Google. So that's, that's their mobile operating system. Uh, and that's, they developed that mobile operating system because they weren't getting enough information when you're online. So they developed a mobile operating system so they could track you when you're offline. Because in other words, Android is, runs your phone and it doesn't matter whether you're connected to the internet or not, or using the internet or not, it's, you're still doing stuff. You're still dialing phone numbers. You're still, maybe you're reading books on your phone. Maybe you're listening to music on your phone. Uh, Android tracks all of that. And it also tracks your location. Now, if you're paranoid about such things and you disconnect location tracking on your phone, doesn't matter. They're still tracking your your location. And here, and, and it gets, just gets creepier and creepier because let's say that you, um, you pull out your SIM card. Let's say that you disconnect from your mobile service provider. So you're just not, you are absolutely isolated. You're not connected to the internet. Uh, guess what? <laughs> your phone is still tracking everything you do on that phone and it's still tracking your location as you move around during the day. Yeah, and at that, the end uh, of the... Hmm? That, that seems so hard to believe. Can you just briefly d dis describe how they're able to do that? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, if it's not connected to the internet or to the, uh, a wireless communication uh, carrier. You know, I would refer your, your viewers to an episode that was on Tucker Carlson in which he had an, an expert explain exactly how they do it and, and he drove around with his Android phone all day long and it was disconnected from the internet. And that, then he, at the end of the day, he hooks up a device, which by the way, anyone can buy these devices now. They used to cost a fortune, now they're very cheap. He hooks up a device to his phone that just before he's, he reconnects to, the, to his mobile service provider, in other words, just, just before he reconnects to the, you know, to the world, to the internet, and the device shows what information is being sent to Google the moment he reconnects to the internet. And it just sends volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of information, including his location, all day long. It's all uploaded the moment he reconnects. I'm just trying to tell you that people have no idea how aggressive and pervasive the surveillance is. And it's going to become very quickly, very rapidly more aggressive, more pervasive because of what's called the internet of things. 
because right now, if you buy a refrigerator or washer or dryer or anything, toaster, uh, those items more and more are connected to the internet. And of course, cars, automobiles too. This is why Google uh, has spent a lot of money uh, trying to develop uh, self-driving cars. It's not because they want to become a car maker. It's because they want more information. And to the extent that they can get uh, you know, car companies to use their, their technology for self-driving, that gives them more information about your location. The more information, that's why they bought YouTube. It gives them more information about you because they, they can tell, you know, which, which, uh, <laughs> which videos you're watching. Oh, here's, okay, totally off track, but I have to throw this in since I sure. just mentioned YouTube. Talking, this is a new area that we're just starting to research and I'm very excited about it. I can't wait to get some numbers. Uh, but the fact is, did you know now that 70% of the videos that people view on YouTube are suggested by Google's top secret <laughs> up next algorithm. It's called the up next algorithm. So you, you, know, you, you search for a video, you watch a video, but then Google immediately is trying to get you to watch another one. An, now, an, an EMT, an ephemeral manipulation tool. That's, that is ephemeral. That's right. It's another ephemeral experience because there's no record of it. But this is incredible. I think this is going to prove to be more powerful than Seam. Because of, because of the sequencing, because they can take you to one video, then to another, to another, to another, and down into a rabbit hole. And there are documented cases now in which uh, people have been converted to, uh, you know, uh, you know ex extreme, uh, uh, you know, uh, Islam or uh, to white supremacy, to li literally because they've been pulled down a rabbit hole uh, the, by a sequence of videos on YouTube. So 70% uh, of the videos now that people are watching are suggested by Google's algorithm. Wow. So that's, well, think of the power, think of that power. Again, it's not, it's not powerful for people who already have strong opinions. It's mm -hmm. powerful for the people who don't the people who are vulnerable, the people who are undecided or uncommitted. And that's a lot of people. Uh, that's why I've, I've calculated that in 2020, uh, that the tech companies, Google being the main one, can shift 15 million votes uh, leading up to the 2020 election. Again, with knowing, knowing, no one knowing that they've done it without leaving paper trail, 15 million votes, which means they're, they're gonna, they will pick the next president of the United States. You know, of course, then, then people always say, well, well, what happened in 2016? How did they fail? Well, they were, they were overconfident, but they're not. They're not overconfident anymore, and they're not going to, they're, they're going to use every single tool available to them. Yeah, and you've got a strategy to defeat that. We can discuss that. I do. Bit, but, but I want to... Um, well, we didn't, we didn't really finish the seven simple steps. You want me to go back to that? Yeah, but, but it, before you yeah. go back to that, maybe just elaborate on the amount of data with respect to surveillance that they've acquired. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The average 35-year-old in the U.S. I mean, you won't guess how much information they right. now store on you. Because That's right. I doubt if anyone out there, maybe one or two people have implemented the strategies you have suggested on these, you know, years ago. Yes, the average 35-year-old in the U.S. has been using the Internet probably since the beginning, and Google's been around for 20 years. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Google has probably collected the equivalent of. <laughs> let, me, let me put this in context. Let me put this in context. Remember Cambridge Analytica? Cambridge mm -hmm. Analytica was accused yes, of yes. Yeah, shifting votes in, uh, in 2016. And there's actually a, a kind of scary documentary that came out just a few months ago all about Cambridge Analytica. And it's complete nonsense in my opinion. Cambridge Analytica claimed that they had, quote unquote, 5,000 data points on every voter in America, which they, which, and not through surveillance, by the way, they just purchased it. They just purchased it from other companies. So Cambridge Analytica was never a surveillance company. 5,000 data points, okay? 5,000 pieces of information about every voter in America. You know how much information Google has on the average 35-year-old in, in, in the United States? The equivalent of 3 million pages of information. 3 million pages of information. But we've all agreed to that in their terms of service. <laughs> well, except uh, I'm one of two people that I know of who's actually read their terms of service. So, <laughs> so I don't think people understand what they're, it is they're agreeing to. But it's true that their terms of service, <clears throat> first of all, according to their terms of service, you agree to their terms of service if you use any Google product, even if you don't know that you're using a Google product. So millions of websites incorporate Google Analytics to track traffic to their websites. Uh, you can't see Google Analytics. You don't know what's there when you're on a website, any website. But if you're using a website that uses Google Analytics, and almost all websites do, Google has a right to track everything you do on that website. So they're not, they're not just tracking you when you're using a Google product. Uh, they're just, you know... I, this is insane stuff. All I can say is that, you know, when I first got interested in these things, I, I, I was concerned. I was at times shocked. I was, but my concern has simply grown and grown and grown. It's just the more I have learned, the more concerned I have become. And I think anyone, anyone who sees the number, those numbers that I see on a regular basis, you know, anyone who, who, who follows the, the court cases follows the various investigations, uh, especially the investigations of Google and the EU, which have been very aggressive. Anyone would be horrified. I mean, I've, I've, I'm horrified by this. It's, uh, I'm, I just well, can't imagine. Well, every one of us should be. So why don't we get back to those seven simple steps and, and uh, at least give us the ammo that we can uh, implement to start protecting ourselves and sure, everyone sure. needs to embrace these widely and adopt them as soon as you can because this is a big issue as Dr. Epstein has carefully described. Sure. Well, again, if you go to my7simplesteps.com, um, you'll come to this article. Um, I, I probably need to update it again already, uh, but I did update it uh, just a few months ago, but I think it needs to be updated again. But, you know, Basically, some of the stuff is very straightforward. Uh, for, for example, uh, you should not use Gmail. Uh, now, because everything you write on Gmail is, uh, is recorded permanently by Google, it becomes part of your profile, and it's, it's used to help to build digital models of you and to make predictions about everything that you desire and want and do and think. 
So, uh, you know, there's a lot of content in emails and you should not be using, uh, you should not be using uh, Gmail. Now, there are, <laughs> there are alternatives to Gmail which preserve your privacy. So uh, the, the one I like the most right now is called ProtonMail. Uh, ProtonMail is based in Switzerland. It's subject to very uh, strict Swiss privacy laws. Basic uh, ProtonMail, uh, the simplest form of it, is free. Uh, the, uh, the paid version of it is relatively inexpensive. I think it's 6 or $7 a month. Uh, and my gosh, worth every penny. Uh, and ProtonMail uses end-to-end um, -end encryption, which means, among other things, that the company itself, the people at ProtonMail, cannot read your emails. Unlike, unlike Google. <laughs> unlike Google. It also means that if you're writing to someone who uses ProtonMail, it means that no one in between you and that person can read your emails because it's all encrypted. It gets decrypted when it arrives at the other person's computer. It's just like the old days, Dr. Mercola, because, you know, we're, we're, as you say, we're probably roughly the same age, like the old days that we can remember when you'd, you know, you'd write a letter to someone, you put it in a mailbox, and no one would see that mail until it was in the hands of the recipient, and then that person would open it. So and that, the point is that uh, Proton Mail basically set up, has recreated that type of uh, communication system, so I recommend that highly. There are uh, alternatives as well, but I think that's the best right now. Okay, Gmail. Uh, how about mm, Chrome? Chrome is Google's browser. Problem with Chrome is everything you do when you're using Chrome is surveilled. Everything. So they know everything you type, everything you look at. If someone is using your computer to go to porn sites, I don't mean you personally, but if someone is using your computer, uh, you know, that's, that's part of your, uh, your profile. So you must not use Chrome. Again, there are alternatives to Chrome which preserve your privacy. The one I like right now is called Brave. You go to brave.com. Brave is... Uh, was developed by the man who developed Firefox, which is the, uh, the, uh, the browser that's run by a nonprofit organization. But Brave is even better than Firefox. First of all, it's very fast. In fact, the, the people at Brave call it the anti-Chrome uh, because it's, they, the idea is that it's faster than Chrome. It's, it's, and, it's, um, and, they, and they keep improving it very, very rapidly. So Brave right now, I think, is, is the best browser, and it, it not only preserves your privacy, it suppresses ads. So I could, I could go on my screen right now and find out how many ads it's been suppressing, you know, in, in the last I, few I've months. Too, and I've, got a, I've suppressed over a million ads, a million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brave is, is, is quite good. Um, now, and then, of course... Yeah. It's based on Chromium, which is the same software that Google is based on. I mean, the infrastructure, the code. So it right. means that you can easily transfer your extensions, your favorites, your bookmarks, and there's like no pain. It's simple. Right. You got to be crazy not to use Brave. Yeah, Brave is fantastic. I really like it. Uh, you must never use Google.com as your search engine. Uh, there, and again, there are alternatives, although you know the next most popular... Uh, search engine in, in the United States is Bing, which is, uh, which is Microsoft's search engine. Uh, that only 
uh, draws around two and a half percent of, of search. So they, they can't influence an election. So, so uh, you, you know, um, the point is that uh, I don't recommend Bing uh, for various reasons. One is that uh, Microsoft and Google uh, signed a secret pact in, I think, early 2016, uh, dropping all lawsuits against each other and so on. And, I, and some people think that since that time, uh, Bing has gradually started drawing its own search results uh, from Google uh, to save money. Yahoo started doing that years ago. Yahoo uh, uh, no longer hasn't, hasn't searched the internet in years. Yahoo just draws its search results uh, mainly from, uh, from Google. So you don't want to be using Google or any kind of extension of Google. You see, that's just an, an invisible form of Google. For example, Siri, which is uh, you know, the personal assistant on uh, iPhones, Siri draws all of its answers from Google. It's just an extension of Google. Uh, and, and again, that's where you have that censorship problem, because if, you know, if, if Google is suppressing content or promoting certain content, that's going, to, that's going to be reflected in the answers that Siri gives you or that Yahoo gives you. So you want to stay away from that world as much as possible. So at the moment, um, the, the search engine that I use, which preserves uh, uh, privacy, is called, it, it has a terrible name. It's called SwissCows.com. Mm -hmm. <coughs> now, there's another I have been recommending, and it's in, it's in my article. It's called Start Page. Start Page. Hmm. Start is the up and start. Google. Aren't they using Google results as a search engine? I mean, it's, it's not it has privacy, but I, don't, I think they're still integrating. The <coughs> oh no, start page draws all, all of its uh, results from Google, which is a good thing because it gives you very good quality. That's are censored, <laughs> but it doesn't track you. That's yeah. the key. It doesn't track you. So start page since 2009 has had full access to Google's uh, database and, but I, I'm at the moment. I'm no longer recommending StartPage, and in, there are several privacy organizations that, in fact, have dropped StartPage uh, from their list of recommended uh, tools uh, because StartPage uh, got bought about a year ago by an American company, uh, which is a a very aggressive um, uh, online marketing company that depends on, uh, just as Google does, it depends on, uh, you know, surveillance sure. to do its marketing. So it's, it's, it's troubling that StartPage now has been bought by another company. Well, which, what, what, what about Quant? I thought you were... Yeah, well, Quant, Quant is, a, is a very innovative search engine based in France. I met with their president in, in France a couple of years ago. Very, very innovative for sure. It's a it's a different style of search, uh, which is really fascinating. And by the way, it's it quant. If you try out quant, uh, Q W A N T, I believe is how they how they spell quant.com. You you should look at it just to see just how different it is because Google's monopoly on search for almost twenty years now has stifled innovation in search. There's been no innovation. People think of Google as the big innovator, and it's quite the opposite. Uh, they've, they've stifled, uh, because they, they buy up companies that might compete with them, and so they've just stifled innovation. Uh, Quant is, takes a different approach to search. Uh, they do preserve privacy, uh, but 
you know, they don't, they don't have access to Google's index. They don't have access. The point is they're, they, not, they're not censoring and you can right. select it as a search engine on, on uh, Brave. Oh yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think, I think Quant is quite interesting. Now, Quant itself just got sold. Oh, yeah. So, you know, because it's, you know, they've been struggling, you know, they, you know, the, most of these search engines that people have tried to build to compete with Google, they've all just disappeared. And the, even the ones that still exist, except for, except for Bing, uh, they, all, they all are attracting less than 1% of search. So it's very, very hard. It's a real struggle. Uh, you know, it's, it's virtually impossible to compete with Google. There is a solution to Google's monopoly on search. I published that in Bloomberg Business Week uh, just a few months ago, and I did talk about it in my testimony before Congress. And that is to make Google's index, which is the database they use to generate search results, to turn that into a public commons. Uh, and in other words, give everyone access to the database and let them create their own search engines on top of it, their own search platforms, I should say, on top of it. And if you made Google's uh, index into a public commons, then search would become competitive again, and Google would lose its monopoly on search worldwide because you'd end up with thousands of search engines, all giving you very good search results because they're all drawing from Google's big database. But they'd, there'd be innovations. You know, they'd be uh, catering to different markets. They'd be ordering things in different ways. They'd be presenting the data in different ways on the screen. There'd be all kinds of innovations. And, and if we didn't like one, we would move to another. So, you know, uh, that, that's, a, that's a pretty simple and it's a pretty light touch kind of regulation. Uh, and it would uh, quickly and permanently end Google's um, uh, worldwide monopoly on search. So there's no other way to do it, by the way. You, yeah, right, I, I, could, I you know. couldn't agree with you more. It's rational. But which, which federal agency would impose that sanction? Would it be the Department of Justice? DOJ has that power. They did that with AT&T uh, in the, the famous, uh, I think it's the, called the 1956 uh, Consent Decree. Uh, and, and DOJ f basically forced that. They forced AT&T to share all of its patents for free with everyone in the world. That uh, led to a dramatic uh, uh, explosion of innovation in electronics and communications. Uh, and this is the same type of thing. It's just making, just making this sure. this resource that Google guards zealously and, and making it available. Uh, that to makes, that makes sense, though. But AT and T didn't have the insights and the sophistication to essentially pay an individual like Macon Delahim about a hundred thousand dollars in two thousand seven to lobby. Google paid him that. <laughs> for their acquisition of DoubleClick, another surveillance tool for $3 billion, who now, who is this guy? He is the attorney general and head of the, the Justice Department's antitrust division. So with that piece of information, they have a paid lobbyist as the head of the DOJ. How likely is it they're going to implement this incredible, effective solution? Well, the FTC uh, also has the authority to do it. Congress has the authority, although, of course, they'll never, they, Congress is dysfunctional. Yeah. But uh, my hope lies with the European Union because the European Union could also oh. implement this because Interesting. Uh, Google has uh, 13 data centers worldwide. Five of them are in the EU. So uh, the EU could implement this. And if they implemented it, it would apply to everyone in the world. 
uh, wow. if, if they if they made this happen. And they've been aggressive at, at prosecuting you. I think what is it? It's well over five billion. It might be thirteen billion fines already. Well, they're up to t- they're up to ten, okay. ten billion. Uh, but yeah, there have been since twenty seventeen. There have been uh, at this point four very large fines levied against Google uh, by the uh, EU. Yeah. So and and Vestager, the the woman who's in charge of these investigations, she was supposed to step down a few months ago. In fact, she didn't. And in fact, she's been given more power than she ever had before. The the, the usual uh, solution people offer is, well, let's break up Google. That's Elizabeth Warren's big thing. Let's break up Google. That means getting Google to divest itself of some of the companies yeah, that they purchase, like YouTube. That doesn't diminish their power very much at all because their power comes from the search engine and you can't break up the search engine. So the way you, you solve the search engine problem is with my, with my plan, which is uh, simply um, making their index into a public commons. Lots, lots of precedent for that in law and lots of precedent in Google's own business practices. After all, they've, they've given StartPage access to their index since 2009. They've, uh, Apple pays Google about $9 billion a year to, to access uh, Google's uh, database uh, for, you know, for Siri. So there, there's lots of precedent here for uh, for for doing that. Uh, let me get just get back because I I'm I'm prob- we're probably running short short on time. No, that's okay. Just we can extend it a few seven, minutes. Seven simple steps. So important. Sure. Yeah, Don't use Google. I yeah. want you to talk about Nord too because. Oh yeah, is, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I, I mentioned Gmail. Get rid of get rid of Gmail. Get rid of Chrome. Get rid of um, Google.com. Uh, get rid of Android. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps that was obvious from some of the remarks I made earlier. Get rid of Android. Android is an extremely aggressive uh, surveillance tool, and again, it's just a surveillance tool. You might think it's something else, but from the from a business perspective and from Google's perspective, it's just an it's it's just another very powerful uh, surveillance tool. Uh, you know, I don't even mention YouTube in in that article, but more and more, I'm when I'm looking for movie trailers, I just type, I just type into uh, another search engine. Um, again, at the moment, I'm using Swiss Cows. Uh, I uh, I just type in, uh, you know, the 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 name of the movie. Uh, you know. What whatever movie I'm interested in, it um, you know at the moment, and I and I put in trailer, and of course I'll get a list, and sure enough, the, a lot of the items listed will be YouTube videos, but there are others too, that are always if you're using a different search engine, something besides Google, you're going to find even for movie trailers that the, you you can get movie trailers on other websites, and more and more now I'm. I'm clicking on those other websites so that I'm not giving information uh, to Google through um, through YouTube. Now you mentioned Nord. Let me let me explain. Another item in my article has to do with VPNs. Uh, that stands for Virtual Private Networks. Uh, when you just use your your mobile phone or your your laptop, your desktop, kind of in the usual way, uh, your identity is very easy for Google and other companies to to see. They can see your identity. Uh, they can see it via what's called your IP address. Uh, but more and more, there are much more sophisticated ways now that they can they, they can they know it's you. 
So one is called browser fingerprinting. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, this, this is something that is, it's so disturbing, but basically the kind of browser you have and the way you use your browser, um, that's like a fingerprint. It's just like a finger. You, you use your browser in a unique way and by, just by the way you, you type, uh, these companies now can instantly identify you. Oh dear. Now, <clears throat> um, Brave actually uh, has some protection against uh, browser fingerprinting, which is kind of cool. But but you really need to be using a VPN. If it, what a VPN does is is it routes whatever you're doing through some other computer somewhere else. It can be anywhere in the world, and. There are uh, hundreds of companies offering, offering VPN services. Some of them even, even offer what appear to be free services. <laughs> By the way, whenever you see free, <laughs> you're the, you're the believe customer. me, yeah, you're the product. It's not, product right now. It's not really free. Yeah. But there's a lot of VPNs out there. The, the one I like the best right now is called NordVPN, N-O-R-D VPN. Uh, there are all kinds of specials usually for, you know, for signing up with Nord. And what it, it does is it, you download some software, you install it just like you install any software. It's incredibly easy to use. You do not have to be a techie um, to use Nord. And it, it shows you a map in, of the world, and you basically can just click on what country you want to be in. Um, is there any and, advantage of selecting, selecting a specific country? I mean, should you select the U.S. versus Mexico or South America? Well, yes, it makes uh, what you select is makes a big difference, which is why during the day I actually move around sometimes from country to country, uh, because depending what country you you're in, that's going to determine, for example, what you see, what kind of content you see, even wow. with, even, even results you'll get on a search engine or what news stories you'll see. Wow, uh, that even depends. That, on, not using Google. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So the v VPN basically makes it appear that, that your computer is not your computer. It basically mm -hmm. creates a, a kind of fake identity for you. And that's good. That's a good thing. Now, very often I, I will go through uh, using Nord. I will uh, go through their computers in the United States. Uh, sometimes you kind of have to do that because uh, or you can't get certain things done. You know, PayPal doesn't like you to be in a foreign country, for example. Yeah, yeah, sure. But if you if you if you pick uh, you know a, a United States location using a VPN, PayPal's fine with that. So you know, uh, you know, if you want to watch um, the premiere of Doctor Who in the UK, uh, then you you just pick a UK location. Now you're in the UK, so you have access to all the UK resources and you can watch, you know, Doctor Who, the, you know, the moment it's posted. You can't do that if you're not in the UK. You have to be in the UK to do that because it's BBC and, you know, it's supported by uh, mm -hmm. taxes from, you know, uh, taxpayers in the United Kingdom. Uh, but the point is, if you have a VPN, you can easily just spoof it. Well, it's, yeah, you, you put yourself in the UK. So, yeah, the, you know, uh, you generally speaking, when you're using a VPN, you, uh, uh, you might just want to stick with, you know, one country and stay there, of course. 
Uh, but generally speaking, uh, if you're an English speaker, you want to pick a, an English-speaking country. Uh, because, uh, you know, otherwise you're, you're, you're going to be, well, first of all, you might be getting a lot of things in, in a foreign language. Yeah, yeah. Which is not, you know, not helpful. So we're talking about, you know, South Africa, uh, New Zealand. Okay. Um, Australia, sure. Australia, et cetera. So you, and just to get a little bit more details on that, if you buy the three-year package, it's about $3, a little over $3 a month, which is almost free. And you get six devices, including one of those devices can be your mobile phone, which I think may be one of the most important. And a question I had for you with Nord, if your mobile phone's using Nord and you're using Google Maps, as many of us do, which happens to be the best, absolute best strategy to, to, to go uh, to find locations and when you're driving, if you're using Nord, does it, does it uh, mask your data? Yes. Yes, it does. And, and see, I... Uh, I use a, yes, I use a very fancy BlackBerry, and the and the the next model we have coming out is going to be one of the most secure phones ever produced in the world. Is that a smartphone too? This? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. And this has this has real keys, but it also the the but the keys are themselves touch sensitive. So in other words, so in other words, you in other words, you can be not only, um, in other words, if you're if you're online, okay. It means that. Well, see, here's here's something from Mercola. Isn't that funny? <laughs> right here. But the point is that I can be moving my screen around, of course, in the usual way, but also even while I'm typing, okay, the keys themselves are touch sensitive. Oh, so touchpad. Yeah, so so wow. that's so really innovative. Yeah, and the point is, this phone is encrypted. This phone uh, uses uh, a VPN. In fact, it uses Nord. And is that, uh, is that the presidents use? Do they give the presidents blackberries? Yeah, normally, but but uh, President Trump has refused to to <laughs> use one. Yeah, he's still using his regular phone, so uh, he's absolutely refused. But yeah, so it, that's what they normally give the president is is a blackberry. Okay, I didn't. I so that's good. Or RIM, as they used to be called. I don't know what it stands for, but uh, research in motion. Went, yeah, I thought they went out of business. Right? No, no, no. They're not out of business. They, they've. Uh, you know, it's complicated, but they're not out of business now. And they're and, and and they serve a very important niche. They serve a you know, uh, you know, a certain uh, niche in the business community and people like me. And you know, there's there's a niche. There there are people who are, you know who are. Who are more aware of the kinds of issues you and I have been discussing today and who want some protection. And so BlackBerry, there are a couple other companies too, but BlackBerry is, uh, is I think, one of the best companies, you know, uh, helping people like me uh, to use the new technologies in a, in a different way, in a, in a way that, uh, you know, that, that preserves, uh, preserves privacy, suppresses ads, um, you know, it can be done. You know, this Google invented this model now that's being used by thousands of companies. It's called the surveillance business model. Uh, and they invented the model, but now everyone's using it. Um, Verizon is using it. Uh, the smart television makers are using it. I mean, the smart, the smart TVs now are surveillance tools. Uh, Verizon now owns uh, uh, AOL and, uh, and is it Yahoo? 
what's the other uh, I'm just trying to think which which is the other email service that they own. I know AOL email is owned by Verizon. And, and so the point is that uh, some of these uh, kind of legacy email systems people have been using for a long time, they're now being used uh, just like Gmail is. They're being used, uh, you know, as, as surveillance platforms because Verizon has adopted the this, this surveillance business model. Yes, indeed. So, um, I, I'm, so the, the summary of your steps are my simple, my seven simple steps.com spell it or put the number seven in and you can, we can, you can go over those, but it's, it's really important because most of those, those recommendations are, are not expensive. I don't think you had in there the, the recommendations because it hadn't been done yet is that the Google recently acquired Fitbit for a number of billions of dollars, which is another way they're going to surveil you. I mean, it is just, extraordinary how much data they're compiling. That 3 million pages you referred to is going to be exponentially higher in the not too distant future. Uh, that's right. And uh, this is true partly be because Fitbit gives them all kinds of physiological information, activity level, and so on. Uh, but they've gone beyond that because Google has, has been investing in DNA repositories now for, sure. for quite a long time. So they're adding DNA information to our uh, profiles. At one point, Google took over the National DNA uh, Repository. And by the way, the articles, the online articles about that, uh, which I have cited in some of my articles, have been taken down. Uh, that's very creepy. And again, that's, that's a kind of censorship. I mean, literally articles about, you know, Google running the, you know, the government-run National uh, DNA Repository, and the articles about that are gone. Hmm. So, you know, and then we're talking about now, of course, the, the development is, I'm sure you're, you're very aware of, of all kinds of monitoring, monitoring tools for monitoring uh, all, all kinds of uh, bodily functions. And all of, all of those new tools that are being developed, all of those new tools uh, are, are, are uploading information uh, into the in, into the cloud, into the internet, which means again, uh, they're fair game for surveillance. Yeah, so it's easy to see that the sophistication and the stealth that Google has uh, applied to capturing so much information about us is is really a dystopian future, almost Orwellian, that. Uh, would be the goal of many governments. Uh, and there is some information on the internet that, that uh, suspects that the, some of the initial funding for the starting of Google was done through, uh, I believe, DARPA and another federal agency. And I'm wondering what, clearly there's a connection with government. I mean, there, there's, there's clearly a collusion. Most of the governmental agencies use Gmail as their primary email, which means Google can look at anything on there. But I'm wondering if you think there's a more direct connection and a collusion and maybe even uh, a, this, either this initial funding or this cooperation between the government and Google to really establish complete tyrannical control of the population. Well, I'm sure everyone has heard of, or most people have heard of, um, President Eisenhower's last speech mm -hmm. that he gave just before uh, President Kennedy took office. This is a speech in which he warned about the 
uh, the so-called military-industrial complex uh, that he was very concerned about. Now, what people somehow have ignored is that in that same speech, he warned about the rise of what he called a technological elite. He said that could control public policy without anyone knowing that they're doing so. And he said we need to be vigilant to make sure this doesn't happen. We've not been vigilant. And the fact is, uh, you know, we, 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 there are now some big companies, Google is the main culprit, uh, that are affecting public policy in part because of partnerships they have with government agencies. So uh, it has been now well documented that some of the initial funding for even the development of the Google search engine came from the NSA and the CIA, not DARPA as far as I know. Okay. But the point is, yeah, but this has been well documented at this point. And, uh, and uh, Google's had a very close relationship with intelligence agencies, not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well for a very long time. Now, let's not get too, you know, conspiracy theory oriented here because uh, some of this is legitimate. Uh, you know, because the, the intelligence agencies 20 years ago, they, they saw, you know, the kind of the, the, the internet beginning to, beginning to grow. And they realized that if they had a way of, of tracking what people were searching for, they could find people who were, who were searching for, you know, how to build a bomb. They could track uh, white supremacists or uh, religious extremists or, you know, people who were a threat to national security. So, you know, they, they encouraged, uh, the, you know, the founders of Google to, uh, to, to come up with ways of, of, of tracking, of preserving uh, search histories. Uh, and that's, you know, that's legitimate. That's a legitimate concern. You know, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a good way for, uh, for intelligence agencies to, to preserve our security. Now, obviously... <laughs> it has gotten out of hand. And, you know, Edward Snowden's revelations showed that clearly because what he showed was that, you know, in our intelligence agencies were literally just vacuuming up massive amounts of information, not just from Google, but from a lot of the tech companies. Uh, sometimes with the cooperation of the tech companies, sometimes not that they basically had it at various times or maybe still have free access uh, to these massive databases that a number of tech companies, you know, have been accumulating. Now that that gets to be problematic because again, there's no there's no court order there. You know, this is this is this is this is government surveillance. Now this is government surveilling in a kind of backhanded way because to for them to surveil directly, they would need that court order. They would need probable cause, let's say. But, per, but if they can just vacuum up information from companies, and companies don't need any permission to do this because maybe they, they get permission from their terms of service, you know, without us knowing, uh, then the government uh, has, has, has a bunch of, you think of them as Santa's elves. They have a bunch of elves. They're just doing all the surveillance for them and doing surveillance, in fact, that they're not even allowed to do. So that's, that's where we stand right now. And of course, you know, Google's project, uh, it was, it's called the Dragonfly Project, to go back into China and work directly with the Chinese government and con controlling their population, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty blatant.
supposedly that's been tabled, uh, and that's because a lot of employees within Google uh, protested, and a few members of Congress too, but it's mainly because of internal protests at Google, and that has led Google now to suppress speech at Google. Google now is officially suppressing political speech by its employees. So let's think about the future. What do you, do you feel that there is hope that we can change the course trajectory that Google has implemented, that we can educate a sufficient number of individuals to recognize this threat and, and implement strategies to take a different course of action? Or do you think they've re reached a critical threshold at which point it's just impossible to turn around? I think we as individuals, as parents, for example, I have five children myself, we can take steps to, to, you know, to protect our privacy to some extent. It's, it's foolish not to. Yeah. So, you know, and, and in other words, we, we, now what percentage of the people in the world will take such steps? I'm sure it's far less than 1%, but the point is, you know, if you, you know, someone watching this right now, if you're interested in doing this, please know you can do this. You can protect yourself and protect your family. Easily, uh, it, easily. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very easy. And, uh, yeah, some of it costs money, but it's it's very very little money. You know, I mean, really, if you even if you did very aggressive protection, uh, you know, you might be talking about you know fifteen dollars a month. I mean, it's, it's very it's a very tiny amount of money. So uh, now, less, regarding less the net, less than you're paying for Netflix. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, regarding the larger issues, there, I'm not so sure. I'm not so optimistic because right now, for example, again the tech companies can shift 15 million votes in 2020. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I know lots of overconfident Trump supporters who think, you know, he's got a lock on this, even, even with the impeachment, and think that the impeachment, in fact, will just mobilize his supporters and he'll get even more votes. Uh, the fact is, you know, again, I know about the power that these companies have. I know that, that they will use all of their power in 2020. That's what several whistleblowers have said coming out of Google just in recent months, that they're they are going to make sure that Trump doesn't win. I know how many votes they can shift. Trump doesn't have a chance. So here's the problem. The problem is if, if, the, if the next president is a, is a Democrat, and I love Democrats, you know, so, but if the next president is a Democrat, and then let's say the Senate is shifted over too, to Democrats and the House is already, you know, the point is, this is what's going to happen. What's going to happen is all the investigations that are currently underway uh, against Google and Facebook as well, they're all going to stop. They'll all stop. And Google will take over Washington, D.C. as they did during uh, President Obama's second term. The six federal agencies were being run by former Google executives. Uh, Obama's chief technology officer, former Google executive. Hillary Clinton's chief technology officer, Stephanie Hannon, former Google uh, executive. Uh, 250 people running through this revolving door uh, between high positions in the Obama administration and high positions at Google. 250 people. 450 visits to the White House by Google representatives. That's about 10 times more than any comparable company. That's what will happen. So I lean left, it's true, and I love Democrats, and everyone in my family is a you know, proud Democrat, but I'm very worried because I think you know, the Democrats will sweep, and I think all these investigations will shut down. And then if you think about it, 
we might never be able to hold these companies back. Google being the worst culprit, we might never be able to get them under control. Yeah, well, it seems like the effective strategy, and one I wasn't aware of until this discussion, is to really support uh, the European Union's efforts to impose yes. this restriction on Google to, have this, to make it a utility for the public comments. I mean, that is the solution because if they have, if they don't have five on their data, five of their data centers, it's going to most. I mean, that's the solution because they, they are they haven't captured the European Union. Correct, and and uh, the European Union has been very aggressive. Uh, they do have the authority to implement this. Um, I, I can tell you at the moment, I'm having trouble. I've dealt with some of those people in Brussels and I'm having trouble uh, getting their attention at this particular moment. Uh, but yes, the, the European Union could, in a way, could rescue humankind. Um, there's more that's needed. Uh, and, you know, we need monitoring systems. Those need to be uh, set up uh, worldwide, not just in the U.S. I, I did a second no. monitoring project in 2018. I discovered once again uh, pro-liberal bias in all 10 search positions on the first page of Google search results, not on Bing or Yahoo. Enough to have shifted upwards of 78.2 million votes in the 2018 elections. Of course, those would have been uh, distributed over hundreds, hundreds of uh, races, but still, that's a lot of votes. It's a lot of influence. Uh, you know, in 2018, on uh, Google's homepage, they replaced the word Google with the words go vote in the Google colors. And everyone said, wow, what a great public service. They're trying to get people to vote. That's not what they were doing. That was a vote manipulation. And I published an article a few months ago uh, with all the facts and figures, all the calculations, explaining exactly how it worked, that if indeed Google displayed the go vote reminder to all Americans, uh, that would have been seen 500 million times that day, and it would have given 800,000 more votes to Democrats than to Republicans, simply because of the demographics of who uses Google. And they did the same calculations I did before they decided to, uh, to display that go vote prompt. That was not a public service. It was a vote manipulation. Well, hopefully, I mean, you, you've in other interviews I've seen you pro, uh, your proposals for a, uh, a moderating moderating system in twenty for the twenty twenty elections, but it's going to be pricey, it's upwards of fifty million dollars, and you know that's a difficult uh, barrier to reach. But there are some wealthy individuals out there that could easily finance this thing, and I think a well, good good strategy is to get you more exposure, so these one or two individuals who could easily support this could get this done and really hold Google accountable. Yes. And, and in fact, what we're hoping to come up with uh, in, in coming weeks would be a pledge. It might come from multiple individuals, maybe just one individual of just half that amount of 25 million because uh, Glenn Beck, who, whom I admire very greatly, even though he's a conservative, uh, <laughs> Glenn Beck has, uh, has actually offered, you know, if we can get a big pledge, uh, to do a nationwide, and by the way, he said this on the radio. It's not, this isn't just some private thing. He said this on, on air publicly. He's offered to do a kind of nationwide fundraiser uh, to match the $25 million. And, you know, he thinks he and his other, other you know, radio colleagues around, around the country could very easily raise the additional money uh, that we would need. And I, I like that concept because I like the idea of, of having monitoring, you know, funded by, you know, 
tens of thousands of people, not just by, by one wealthy donor. Yeah. Well, you've got to be pragmatic too. I mean, it needs to be done. So you have to, you have to get it up and running and sometimes right. it might be more of a challenge, but I think that is ideal from multiple donors. So, uh, you know, I'd like to commit to helping support you in this effort and uh, Thank we'll you. talk offline in some of those strategies. So, uh, are there, for those who, this has been a long interview, but uh, I think it's really, really important uh, information that people need to know. Uh, they could at least take action to be part of the remnant, the part of the population that isn't controlled by this massive surveillance agency, uh, Google, and is seeking to have totalitarian control. So we can effectively isolate ourselves from them, as you have done for the last uh, six years, or no, uh, 14, six years. So, uh, you know, these strategies, and we can commit to having this decade, 2020, being one where we're not surveilled. Uh, easy to do and relatively inexpensive. So are there any uh, websites you would recommend or additional resources other than to let me reinforce the strong encouragement to watch the creepy line free on <laughs> Amazon Prime? And well, you start with the creepy line, then go to, you know, my seven steps.com. If people want to uh, support my research or they want to learn more about it, they can go to mygoogleresearch.com, mygoogleresearch.com, very easy to remember. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of resources, but if you go to, if you go to um, mygoogleresearch.com, then from there you can link to all kinds of resources and all kinds of work, uh, you know, that I've been doing. Uh, now since 20, uh, 2012. All right. Well, that's terrific. I, get, I so deeply appreciate uh, the courageous, and I think that's a serious understatement, the courageous work that you're doing to really free us from this tyrannical future, this dystopian future that seems inevitable, but you know, with people like you, we can hopefully uh, determine strategies to circumvent that inevitability. Well, my middle name is David. <laughs> <laughs> there you go uh but uh this this goliath is uh it's huge pretty pretty, pretty tall i think it's you know it's going it to take be, more would it be, i meant to ask you this earlier would it be fair to describe them as the biggest monopoly in the history of the world yes no no question about it and the most powerful uh, company that's ever existed uh Gosh, in, in human history wow those are two just you might even have that as the headline for this article, the most powerful company in the history of the world. I mean, that is frightening. Well, it's, it's an interesting note to close on, but thank you for everything and uh, really appreciate all your work. And hopefully people will engage and uh, participate in the process of freeing themselves from Google. Well, Dr. McCullough, thank you for this opportunity and I admire your work and I and I feel for you because I know that you, you yourself have been victimized uh, by Google and uh, that's, that's terrible because you do a lot of good things for people's health. Yeah, it's terrible from the perspective, not personally, but from the, the perspective of what they're doing more broadly, which is restricting access to this information. I mean, you literally will not be able to find in Google any natural strategies for any disease. It's only going to be pharmacological approaches. So that, yes. that is desperately evil. There's no question. So that's what do, what really saddens me at, at the deepest levels, uh, it's not personal. We're doing fine. Is most of these these large? I was my company existed two years before Google Google was invented, so you know we've got a reputation and people support us and we're doing just fine. It's just you know the people who don't know yet, which has been my mission to 
to change this whole system. And I'm confident we'll do it because I'm going to be living for a long time. So <laughs> they're going to look, have to look out for me. Go All for right. it. Thank okay. You. Thank you.